Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to introduce tonight's event, Abstract Expressionism Revisited. It's nearly 60 years since the last major collective survey in the UK of the abstract expressionism movement. The current RA exhibition seems to therefore be a unique opportunity to bring together a highly esteemed panel of royal academicians to re-examine the significance of abstract expressionism and discuss how artists and the arts world internationally responded to this artistic phenomenon then and now. Um, we are hugely privileged to have artists Basil Beattie, Mally Morris, Paul Huxley and Chris Willebrun here together for this event discussing their personal response to abstract expressionism and how the movement has influenced and impacted on the visual arts. Um, it's also always a privilege, obviously, to have uh, the RA's artistic director, Tim Marlowe, here this evening, um, who I'd like now to hand over to, who will be chairing tonight's event. Thank you. Kira, thank you very much. I feel like the barman at the Cedar Tavern tonight. I can't think of a more um, enjoyable discussion uh, that we're about to um, receive. The, the origins of abstract expressionism would make a, an amazing exhibition in and of itself. Aside from the obvious language of Cubism, there's surrealism, expression of myth, the American sublime, uh, American regional painting, landscape painting, the presence of the Mexican muralists, the works uh, progress project administration, um, there's the migration of the French avant-garde, uh, the unconscious, uh, psychotherapy. I mean, you could just go on and on and on. So given that abstract expressionism is a kind of filter for so many um, different ideas and movements in the 20th century, not least Impressionism and late Monet, thinking about our last show here um, in the main galleries before the summer exhibition, and the fact that the show could have been called Abstract Impressionism, and for a time that was a term that had a certain critical currency in New York. Um, to ask a group of distinguished artists what the influence and impact of Abstract Expressionism was is a very loaded, complex and rich question, because... There are so many aspects of abstract expressionism, I think, that resonated back in the day and still do. Anyway, with that context in mind, um, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to start by asking each of our four distinguished artists about their first encounters with abstract expressionism and the impact that it had, um, starting with Basil Beattie. Basil, when, when, was, when was your um, first encounter with abstract expressionism? I remember being a student here and... Seeing or knowing about that, absolute expressionism, um, but really without seeing much. So when the '59 exhibition happened at the Tate, my memory of it was it was so varied. But my lingering memory is that I would use the word realism with regard to my experience of that work. The use of the word realism related to the experience of these works. There were vivid and passionate, always very varied. And it wasn't to do with abstract work being made as abstractions from nature. On the whole, that was not the case. Um, the uh, Life magazine that later on had um, Rothko and Klein, as I remember, you would have a page of Rothko, beautifully reproduced in colour, and a sunset on the opposing page. Uh, and then Klein, and then you turn the page, and then there'd be 
girders of a, of a bridge seen at twilight. And the implication, the suggestion was that if you know where to look in nature, you would see the origins of these works. It took a while for me to then experience Rothko in uh, the Whitechapel in 61, to realize that he was not just a formalist, he wasn't a colorist simply. There was something else that was triggering these works. And certainly you couldn't put a, a sunset next to a Rothko, uh, an image of a Rothko painting, and, and know what, in fact, was these paintings were about. He was really trying to make, or trying to make visible, ideas about being alive and being human that had no visibility. He was giving them visibility. Did Rothko, was he the standout artist in the Tate exhibition? Because we should say in that exhibition, I mean, asking you, all of your question about abstract expressionism, it's a very, very big movement. Um, you could divide it into colour field and action painting, and, and David Ampham is trying to challenge that, I think, quite intelligently. But it's a very, very varied movement. Who were the standout artists when you first saw the show? Well, for me, uh, de Kooning, quite opposite to Rothko, of course. There was a kind of uh, a linear element about, uh, about de Kooning that I uh, enjoyed at that time. So I suspect as a, as a student, I was uh, influenced mainly by de Kooning at that time. I also respected Rothko, who I knew was completely different. There were lots of artists. Grace Hartigan's not in the show, for instance. I remember her work and uh, Torkov. It was a terrific show, and it had great, great, great influence on students and professional artists. Paul, you went to New York in the 60s and met some of these artists. When was your first exposure to it? My first experience was very similar to Basil's because we were fellow students at the, at the time. And, um, of course, as, as Basil correctly said, American painting began to filter through in the odd magazine or whatever, but the real impact was the Tate Gallery show. But that was in the 50s, uh, 56, was it? Or 50? There was a show in uh, 56, but the, the main show was 59, wasn't it? Yeah. People have often said, trying to account for that period, that the 1960s, the swinging 60s, really began in the 50s. And I think that's true of the impact, at least not the true history, of the New York school because there was great excitement bubbling in the 1950s. Very little of it came across the Atlantic. When it did, I think, for me anyway, the impact of it was that here was something I wasn't really feeling I needed, but I damn well needed it when I saw it, because it was the first time I saw a painting that truly represented the spirit of the 20th century. Um, we were all, a lot of us, not all, trying to grapple with contemporary art, with 20th century art, and trying to grapple with Picasso and, in this country, uh, uh, Ben Nicholson and people like that, and trying to find ways of developing our painting. But it wasn't until we saw the New York School of Painting that it was really 20th century, and one felt suddenly released for having seen it. Uh, Mal and Christopher encountered it later, and I'll come on to them very yes. brief, uh, quickly in a minute, but... I think it's very interesting for all of us to, to, to understand that... I mean, Pollock had been on the front cover of Life magazine in 1950. His first 
great large-scale work mural is 1946. It's in our exhibition. And yet it didn't come to London until 59. The art world is obsessing trends yesterday, you know, tomorrow. We're obsessed with the kind of speed of what is happening. This is nine years after, you know, Pollock's been accepted in American culture as a kind of master, although a kind of, it might be a kind of freak show master. That is interesting. Pop art, the independent group, the signs were already there, and yet the two of you were encountering this art at the same time in 59. And interesting what you said about, actually, it was, I, I responded to it because I realised it was something I needed. Yes. Did it make a big impact on other artists? Did, did this feel like something momentous across the culture, broadly speaking, or was it only a very small group of particular kinds of artists who thought this was extraordinary? I, my answer to that is that uh, I think it was a small group of artists because there were many art, artists pursuing a different vein and um, those of us who were grappling with abstract painting suddenly saw um, a sort of beacon to follow. Some of the American artists started coming over in the 50, or early 60s, and I certainly met uh, Motherwell, and his wife then was uh, Helen Frankenthaler. They, they came to London, and I, they, in fact, they came to my studio um, and saw what work I was doing. I met... Um, Clement Greenberg and, and Barnett Newman on their visits to London. Um, but very soon after that, I, I myself went to New York and, and met this whole group of artists. So you met Rothko and Newman? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. I can have things to say about all of them, well, but they're sort of anecdotal. Oh, we want anecdotes. Uh, <laughs> but let's, we'll just finish the kind of initial impact, and then I think we should yes. be as anecdotal as, as possible, mm. because we can analyse from the anecdote. Uh, I also want to know whether you were on that legendary trip that involved Mark Rothko and, and, um, and Andy Warhol with Brian Robertson or not to Coney Island, but that's a, that's a, that's a question to hold. Um, Mali, so this uh, idea of the impact of, of abstract expressionism it came to you a little later was it already becoming dated when you first encountered it i don't mean to say you were behind the curve but did, did you first look at it as something that was almost historic or did it still have a freshness in the 70s um thinking about all this i reminisced to myself and um i was uh, 16 in uh, doing A-levels at school, uh, there was an art teacher, very elderly, Mr. Clayton Jones, I remember him well, in Immaculate Tweeds, and um, he taught, there were only two of us doing art, and he taught through um, analysing uh, the old masters. But um, every now and again, I think to keep abreast with the times, he would bring in a magazine, like um, The Artist, something like that, and he'd say, have, have a look at this, and if there's anything you like, we'll, we'll look at it together. And I pointed to, I'd never heard of either of them, Matisse and Pollock, and he took it on. And um, we, we, you know, we, we looked at them, and I painted Matisse's and Pollock's <laughs> in, in a small scale. And then um, he was replaced, he retired, and he was replaced by a young artist, um, just out of college at Newcastle University Fine Art Department. And he said, I think you should apply there. So I took my uh, versions of, of Matisse and Pollock to my interview. I, I have no idea what I would have said about them, but I was accepted. Um, 
but I was accepted into a four-year course and the first year was run by Richard Hamilton. And it was fantastic to be there in the 60s, but expressionism was not encouraged. So it was a while before I caught up with abstract expressionism. Was Hamilton quite critical of the abstract expressionists when you were a student? I don't remember him denigrating them, but our, our eyes were turned to the New York of um, Duchamp. I mean, he was building the replica of the large glass and somebody in the house I lived in was helping him with that. The cage was very big. Um, Jasper Johns, um, Warhol. Um, so uh, that was the sort of um, ambience. So, so was it a rebellious gesture for you to, as it were, return to abstract expressionism and circumvent Richard? No, I, I, don't, I don't think consciously. Um, it, 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 it was slow gestation. I went on to Reading. Uh, I went from Reading to London. I met different artists. Um, found my, followed my nose, really, uh, through what I liked, what I was drawn to, which didn't really mean rejecting anything. It just meant going towards something that... Um, attracted me, uh, um, spoke to me. What was the first abstract expressionist painting you ever saw physically? I'm not sure I can remember that. Um, so it wasn't that momentous? Uh, evidently not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I have, I have reminisced elsewhere about... Um, at Reading, where I did a, a postgraduate course, and Terry Frost was there. He was a very, very vivid link with St. Ives and the St. Ives painters who'd met the abstract expressionists as well as both of you. <laughs> there, were, there were sort of the legends of, of those sort of visits. Um, but um, so Reading was very intense. I was making all sorts of different kinds of things as well as paintings, but we were looking a lot at um, New York paintings kind of post-abstract expressionist, but somebody showed me Hoffman, and I remember vividly disliking them, and then seeing a show in Cork Street a few years later, and being sort of bowled over. So I think I would date my being bowled over to when I saw a Hoffman show. I mean, all the other artists, Rothko, I was absorbing them. I mean, you couldn't not if you're an art student in, in the 60s and the 70s. Um, but in terms of shock and visceral response, that would, that's what I would date it to. Christopher, when was your first encounter? When we were next door, um, Basil said um, to me, did you see the 1959 show? <laughs> I felt slightly distressed at that point and also disappointed because I would have been seven. I'm sure it would have had an enormous effect on me. But actually, it's very specific what happened because I was at the Slade from 70 to 74 and I had a wonderful and in many ways deeply inappropriate tutor who was a constructivist, Malcolm Hughes. And he gave me some tapes to take home. And they were interviews by David Sylvester with the great American painters. Now, I remember, as clear as a bell, switching on, and I heard him talking to Philip Guston. And I had absolutely no idea what they looked like, but I heard Philip Guston talking. 
And I suddenly realised, like a, like a light bulb going on, painting's not about making pictures, it's about thinking. Because Guston was thinking through how you make art. All the questions that we have, the deepest questions we ask ourselves privately that distress us, he was thinking through the means of painting towards not even answers, but just staying in that state of anxiety, which is painting. So I listened, and my imagination completely woke up. So then I hunted down Philip Gusson. There was one painting in the Tate. There were very few things. But it was enough, as a very young... By that time I was, what, 18? As a very young person. Um, it, was insp- it was completely inspiring to him. Just the idea of what painting could be. And Philip Gusson's a very good example because Guston went out of classic, as it were, non-figurative abstraction towards the problem of late abstract expressionism. We, here it is. The problem of late abstract expressionism is how you move forward. Because abstract expressionism in its high period is predicated on the risk of not knowing what you're doing. It's not figurative, it's not Bauhaus, what is it? All the things I said earlier and nothing. But what was the Guston painting? Was it, in a, was, it a, was it a post-1970 painting? or an, a, a, a No, it was a classic um, early phase, like Prague, yeah. which came up here. Yeah. And in fact, even the title Prague is a clue to Guston because that is, of course, Kafka. It's the golem. It's the idea of making something out of nothing that then speaks. So all of these things, which is the deep content of abstract expressionism. Mali. I, it's just something that Christopher just said it reminded me of um, a quote from the great um, Morton Feldman, the composer, who was a great friend of all the people in the show, or many of them. Um, and it, it's in his book, which I love, um, Give My Regards to Eighth Street, I think it's called, it's sort of reminiscences. And he said, um, sometime in the 50s, just for a while, maybe six weeks... Nobody knew what art was. <laughs> no. Well, I remember thinking about... Well, I was very fond of Gusson, but um, the, uh, the things I remember about Gusson was when uh, it, he was... Uh, there, there was a magazine called It Is... Uh, an American magazine, and they had transcriptions of all the different different panels. Um, and this was the Philadelphia panel. The um, Rosenberg was the in the chair, the, the critic, uh, and I think Motherwell was on uh, on the panel. Uh, talk of Guston and. Uh, I think of who else? Or oh, uh, Reinhardt. And um, uh, Rosenberg opened the panel with a question What's it like when you go into your studio? And Torkov had his say. Um, and when it came to Gusson, he said, Well, I, I remember something that John Cage said that I would associate myself with. And the case had said, when I go into the studio, it's filled with other people, other people's ideas. 
And as you begin to paint, they begin to leave one by one. And if you're lucky, you leave. Implying that of course the the more the more you get involved with what you're doing, that there's no distinction between the brain and the hand. That I asked Picasso, was it Picasso that said that painting can paint itself? Um, where it's that degree of involvement, and I don't think you can kind of uh, set. Uh, you you can't predict exactly. You can't formulate a kind of uh, a target to aim at. But you have to have something to kind of involve the practice that is tangible in terms of being able to think about it. But the more you get involved with it, there is discoveries through the process of making <coughs> that are not predictable at the beginning. And it is that kind of element of, uh, of making, it, making an image for me, that I still is still with me. I I may start off, and I think I'm more um, clear about what I might want to kind of uh, propose as, as as something that might um, reveal or take some account of what I might want to be the content of the work. But you can't list content. If you list content, it's a bit like looking at a signpost that says Edinburgh and experiencing through reading that, being ex expecting to experience what it's like to be in Edinburgh. I think that idea about your studio is filled with people and as you start to paint, they leave one by one is a really potent idea. There's another idea, which is Harold Bloom's notion of the anxiety of influence or the tyranny of influence. And I, I just wonder whether, I mean, as Paul, and then any of you want to wrestle with this, but how, how much of a kind of liberation license was your specific encounters with the abstract expressionism? And how daunting was it? You know, how much did they feel like work you'd got to actually get through to get to your own voice and vision and language? These artists were heavyweights, there's no doubt about it. They reached uh, fame and notoriety when they were reasonably mature, unlike artists today who kind of get headlines and massive exhibitions and catalogues when they're just leaving art college. These, these guys had been around for a couple of decades before anyone noticed them. And so when they arrived on the scene, eventually being represented in exhibitions, uh, they were not particularly flattered by it. They were angry. And um, they were critical of critics. They were critical of the galleries. They were critical of uh, the press and the media and museums. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a well-known photograph of the group of the New York School artists the Irascibles. They're called the Irascibles. <laughs> and that wasn't a misnomer, I can tell you. Um, eventually, unfortunately, they, 
they became angry with each other for various reasons. And by the time I hit New York in 1964, one had to tread on eggshells trying to avoid mentioning one of the uh, artists in the presence of another one because there, there were unknown rivalries and, and uh, disputes that happened Actually, that, them. that continues. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> um, sure at the opening of Abstract Expressionism, it was an enormous honour to meet Sandra Still, the daughter of Clifford Still, and someone said, do not introduce her to Christopher Rothko. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was like that, very, very vividly. Did you put your foot in it, Paul? You're a very diplomatic I'm sure, man, I'm but sure did you? I did, but actually Basil's story about walking to the studio, just to illustrate the human side of these people, um, Rothko said once uh, uh, in my presence that... Um, Going to the studio, he had, like most people, he had a studio separate from his home. He would um, get in the subway in the morning, heading for the studio, with um, sort of gathering excitement in his belly, this feeling that I'm going to do something important today. Out of the subway, down the street to his studio, unlock the door with... with mounting anticipation, go into the studio, look around, and then he'd lie down on the sofa and go to sleep. <laughs> a, a, day or two, a day or two, he said. And he, he was a... All right, that, he was a melancholic person, um, and, and certainly that's revealed to a large degree in his painting and to a large degree in the things he had to say and certainly the way he died, tragically which is another thing. So many of them were dying tragically, and that I've never quite understood. But he, had, he, he was capable of being roused out of it, and I was once in a car with him driving um, up near um, where Lee Krasner, Kralik, uh, Pollock's widow, lived, and a wonderful great artist herself, and playing on the car radio, we had the Beach Boys. And I uh, drew his attention to... <laughs> The lyrics, and he was very amused at the particular lyrics that had the alliteration of Wendy, what went wrong. And he <laughs> sang along to Wendy, what went wrong on the, the Beach Boys. So nobody normally would expect that of, of Rothko. But uh, I, what amused me a lot was, was, of course, their persona and their gravitas and, and their achievement, but also the side of them that people didn't really realise just through looking at their work. Oh, for a mobile phone. We have to <laughs> take the picture of him doing or the, the video. Um, the, the persona of these artists became mythologised. You're absolutely right about the tragic dimension. And Rothko talked about wanting to explore the tragic dimension in art. But there's often a danger that we conflate personal expression and emotion with the works. In other words, it's always denied that the late works that get darker and darker are actually an expression of a state of mind. They're something else. Mm. Is that something borne out by your experience of, of, of Rothko? Personally, I, I have never been won over by the very late works, and I was very upset when I saw them. Uh, not just the fact that they were in, in uh, ranges of greys when we all know he was such a beautiful colourist, but also because there was a horizon there. He made paintings through a large part of his life with these horizontal clouds of colour 
and what to me was particular about them was that um, where were those clouds of colour sitting in relation to the plane of the canvas and where was the perimeter sitting in relation to the clouds and then suddenly he made these paintings that looked like a landscape of the moon where you had the grey uh, dust disappearing on, onto a horizontal horizon and sky above. In 69, after the lunar landing, which is... Which interesting, I, yes, I hadn't, I hadn't put those two together. But to me, to me I, I maintain it was a, a state of mind and I, I wasn't surprised when he committed suicide. I'm, I'm particularly focused on Gusson, and um, I remember uh, Manny mentioned uh, Walton Feldman. He was a great friend of Gusson. Gusson uh, and Feldman, I think Feldman took Gusson to his office, and uh, when they entered the office, uh, Gusson said, I see you've still got the painting that area. And Feldman said, yeah, he took it. Fantastic. Gusson paused a moment and thought about it, probably smoking a fag at the same time. Uh, and he looked at it and he said, yes, uh, the shape on the right is listening to the problems of the shape on the left. <laughs> and that struck me very strongly. It gave a kind of, uh, I suspect a kind of, uh, Almost a story um, that, that that could go on between uh, abstract and uh, I mean certainly uh, when when Gusson did change and uh, I was aware of a change uh, through a friend of mine who was a painter in Baltimore and she she said uh, she phoned me up one night and said. Uh, I, I know you. I know you like Philip Gusson's work, but I've just seen his recent work. And I said, "Well, what would they like?" And she said, "Well, I don't know whether you believe this, but she said, hobnail boots and hairy knees." <laughs> and I said, "I don't believe you." She said, "They're unmistakably Gusson. The factor of the paint is his colour and everything, but you have to see them." And uh, I knew what she was talking about when I did see in the in the flesh. But um, that that th and uh, and I remember when uh, Justin had his show, uh, his first show of that kind of work. He lost all his friends. I mean, he was called a traitor by many. I think. And yeah, like Dylan it, playing electric, yeah. yes. And it, 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 it no, it just just one more. It, no, De Kooning. When they came out of the private view, de Koenig nudged him and said, that's freedom. That's freedom. It's, that's very weird, Tim. I was just thinking about Dylan going electric and someone shouting out, what is it, traitor? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Um, Judith. 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 Sorry, yeah. Judith. Um, the, issue, the issue was that by the time you got to the 1970s, abstract expressionism had become an orthodoxy. The entire spirit of abstract expressionism was to do with risk and authenticity. And Guston is particularly interesting because, in fact, he is the, um, not quite the last of the abstract expressionists because then you have Joan Mitchell and, and so on, but he certainly carried it forward. 
And that was something that interested me as a young painter. Because if the principle of abstract expressionism is what is authentic, what is true, how can one maintain painting as the most serious expression of thought? What do we do? And since abstraction was starting to become... I remember seeing Clement Greenberg at University College sitting on a chair, swinging his legs happily in a big lecture hall full of students talking about taste. And suddenly Clement Greenberg looked orthodox. But the students wanted something like myself, watch, watching this, you know, the great man, thought there must be something extra. How do we push this forward? So actually then you move into the mid-70s and towards the 80s where you get things like neo-expressionism. Neo-expressionism, much derided, actually was a genuine successor to expressionism because it tried to introduce subject matter, the literary, the national, all of these difficult topics into the material and handling of abstract expressionism. And, and I mean, I, I would say this, wouldn't I, because I was involved with it, but nevertheless, it added another layer of risk into what I think the great painter, those great painters were doing. Well, it was Frank Seller, wasn't it, that put the nail in the coffee, really, of uh, uh, that kind of work. Um, like, like every kind of work, it, it becomes a cliché very quickly. And I remember Van, Pentechnican Vans from Newcastle, in fact, of student work coming down to Young Contemporaries exhibition, filled with uh, Pollocks. <laughs> Complete Pollocks. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, it, 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 it was difficult to kind of maintain uh, certain aspects of uh, that were highly charged with philosophical thoughts um, that absolute expression th those began to dwindle of course uh, and of course a lot of people were only interested or only able to kind of grasp work through style uh, I remember a lot of people, uh, a lot of painters were painting a la um, Rothko at a certain point. But of course, what they were painting were to do with what they saw in the world, which was Rothko's. Rothko, I think, was trying to paint something that had no visibility. And that was the important difference. And that's what didn't transfer to people who were influenced by those. I think, I think um, anybody who's making anything at any time, whether it's painting, uh, uh, poetry, literature, they're always having to guard against cliché. Um, I mean, they're moved by the artists, the writers that have moved them. But... Um, Martin Amis wrote a book, a, a, a book of essays rather than a novel, called The War Against Cliché. And I think that's what moves art on. I, I, it, it isn't anything to do with style. Um, or, the, or at least when it is to do with style, that's when it becomes cliché. So, I mean, the, the legendary hot licks of, of 8th Street you know, were, were, 
when everybody wanted to be de Kooning but wasn't de Kooning, and that's you know that was a problem. It, 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 it doesn't mean that the art, the, the, the good art, was any less good for that. Um, but I think it's it's constant. Um, and go on. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I just suddenly cast my eye around the paintings in this room. It's worth having a look at the paintings in this room in terms of... Up to a point. Because these... Up to a point, yes. I'll be, I'll be careful, I'll be gentle. Um, these are essentially what we call easel paintings. Literally, painted on an easel, finished, framed, glazed for the academy, and put on the wall. Now, imagine, imagine the shift between easel painting and painting. Painting on the floor, on the wall, all the other things that Harold Rosenberg, the action painters, painting but suddenly became an arena in which to act. How different that is from the conventional landscape, the beautiful, tender reminiscence of a scene. It's profoundly different. Profoundly different. Except that... De Kooning, that gentle enough? No, it's great. But de Kooning was, was called an easel painter, wasn't he? And his connection with the old masters gets stronger and yes. stronger. Yes, I yes, look yes. at that wonderful room and yeah. I see Titian and, de, and, and yes. Rubens as much as I see the way forward to neo-expressionism. Yes. But, but, not from here, but from here. It's, when you go into the room of Clifford Still, you don't experience it just... Uh, optically or cerebrally, you experience it physically. <laughs> you, get, you get a sort of feeling. You encounter this thing, this thing. And in all of the artists on this panel, you'll be aware of the physical nature of our work. Which I th Is that fair? Can I say that, Malik? Can I say that? I, well, I, I'd like to chip in with um, <laughs> Helen Frankenthaler. I'd like to speak about one of the great women painters. Um, she only has one work in the show. Perhaps she's not really considered by many in this sort of period. I mean, she, she was very young, um, um, but there is a kind of token work for her in, in the show. Um, she, she came in the, in, in a way she became well known in the next generation. Um, but one of the inspirations in terms of my um, painting was to first of all before I saw it although I did see it later um, I heard about the way she painted mountains and sea so I, it's, I've taken it on as my anecdote I mean it's not I just, I've read about it so many times um, and so it's um, so the story goes um, she had gone on, on a, a vacation trip motoring uh, with Clement Greenberg to Nova Scotia uh, wild country, mountains and sea. And she was very well schooled by Paul Feely at Bennington Art College in Cubism. She said, it's reported to have said she knew it inside out. She was painting small easel paintings mostly. But she'd, she'd graduated. She was now beginning to meet all the um, artists in, in New York. And she'd certainly seen um, Pollock's work. Um, but she was still very young, and um, she'd got a loft to work in, which not many people had in those days, but she did. She was from a privileged background. And she brought a roll of canvas to use, to, to cut and stretch up and put on her regular size stretches before 
um, she'd gone away. So she came back and she had all these studies, plein air, watercolour studies from the landscape as they moved around. And um, without a particular plan, she pinned them up on the wall of her studio, many of them. And she looked at the role of canvas and she looked at these things and maybe had in the back of her mind an experience of Pollock working on the floor. So she unrolled the whole roll across the length of the studio floor, the loft, and diluted her oil paint, which normally she would have been mixing on a palette, and began to pour, and she made mountains and sea. And she was sort of shocked by it, so the story goes. And she called in her studio neighbour, Friedel Zubas, and said, what, what, what do you think? And he said, leave it. And she left it, uh, thank goodness. And she, so she said afterwards in interviews, the landscape was in my arms. I love that phrase. So later on, um, when I began to work in a kind of similar kind of way for, for a while, um, that story, that it, it, it sort of gave me permission to take those risks or be, you know, um, physically, materially. Um, and, you know, there's so many stories about the materiality of what these people did and how they behaved physically. Um, but to use the, your whole back across a stretch um, rather than your wrist... <laughs> in front of a vertical canvas on an easel or a wall. It's a very, very different thing um, as experience, in terms of what comes out, <laughs> in terms of what surprises you, and philosophically, physiologically, in all sorts of ways. So it's, it, um, I would pinpoint my version of that story as being um, inspiring. I, I, don't, think I don't like to I give think away. fascinating. I've never heard that version before, that story. And you're quite right. She did use oil paint for a long time after acrylic paints had been developed and, 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 and were, were being used by so many artists. But what's interesting also is the chain of events from one artist to another, even though it seemed to us, particularly here in England, that abstract expressionism was a sort of explosion. As in all parts of art in history there was a chain going from one artist to another and she knew Pollock's work and she was one of the few and only artists who did something about that that was new and developed from it and she in turn passed on an influence to Morris Lewis who was a wonderful and artist and came up from Washington he and Ken Noland were working in Washington I think it was Clement Greenberg who introduced them to her work. To, took them to his to her studio. Jules, Jules too, I think. <laughs> mm. yeah. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. I'd quite like to have seen as a as a final work in the show um, a very big, wonderful Morris Lewis <laughs> in terms of a yeah. hint of what might come next. You have to stop somewhere. <laughs> no, we do. And, right? <laughs> and obviously, you don't like to give away the failures, but we did try and get Mountains and Sea. But, oh, see, we, but we couldn't borrow it. I mean, the, there's a lot that got away, but obviously there's a lot that's there. Mm. And, the, and how you end a show like this is really interesting because as you're all, you know, the living embodiment of, actually, abstract expressionism, the story continues in different ways. But 1970, 
you know, the gust and hairy knees and, and uh, sole of the shoe, an odd but rather wonderful Baziotis, you know, later de Kooning and a massive Joe Mitchell panel painting that somehow re-envisages Monet it doesn't, isn't a bad way of ending. But I think, it, it, by definition, it's an incomplete story. So that brings us round, in a clunky way, to how you all now respond to seeing the movement retold in a certain way for the first time in 60 years and, um, and, and whether or not in any way your opinions have changed. It's the kind of impact of the show, really. Mali, how, how... I mean, let's, let's take the gloves off and let's not be polite. <laughs> this is a kind of family thing, but let's lay into it if you like. I, I'm happy with that. But how, well, how is it um, for you? Well, I walked in um, and into that first room the first thing I saw was the David Smith sculpture of the letter, which I've always liked but haven't seen for a long time. And then behind it was the Pollock um, male and female. And I felt I was at some kind of reunion of friends or something. I just wanted to say, hello, <laughs> there you are again. <laughs> uh, it was intimate. You know? And then I walked into the Gorky room and was very moved <laughs> um, into, you know, kind of subdued feelings um and and um so that and then that the pollock mural is absolutely blew me away and still does every time i see it because i hadn't i didn't really know about it um i was very excited about blue poles coming over from australia but i wasn't prepared for mural and i can't i'm just amazed by it actually constantly and then, so all through the show, and then I got to the room, the final room, w with the Hoffman, and I'm upset <laughs> about where that's hung. Um, I mean, I think the show's wonderful, but of course... Um, uh, Hoffman at the end. And, and the frame? No, I don't like the frame, of course, I. but I, I like less the way the, where it's kind of sidelined. I think he was very, very important in abstract expressionism, if that is a kind of subject. But um, I think if we'd had an artist curating the show, and I'm very proud that we had David Ampham, but I also oh, want yeah. to get artists involved, I think Hoffman would have been a much bigger presence. I mean, the, mm. the cliche of the artist's artist, but I mean, I remember mm. talking to John Hoyland about mm. Hoffman and seeing the show that he oh, curated. Oh, he put a great show on at the tape. He did, yeah. But um, just to finish, the, um, so but, but I, I was in Basel last week, and I didn't know, but I was thrilled when I found out there was a Hoffman show. Uh, sorry. Pollock. Pollock show there called The Figurative Pollock. It was so timely in terms of seeing Mural and all the other Pollocks and all the other paintings in this show because um, I just felt I was learning so much from having seen this show 55 years after picking Pollock out in school. For me, the show is... is it, I don't know, it's like hindsight is a wonderful thing and living long enough is a wonderful thing uh, to see it all again and to see it because you can only ever get a painting when you're in front of it. I mean, you know, you can read about it, think about it, discuss it. You only, in my experience, get it when you're in front of it. So to have the chance to see all this and to somehow weigh it up with what's happened in one's life but then to suddenly come across this show in Basel, and one's always learning. So to me, it's not what's well, historical in one sense, but 
so vivid. I mean, wonderful to have. Very, very interesting that Gail Baslitz, I spoke to him recently, and he, he loved the show, but he, uh, well, I say but, but, he just said that when he saw that show, it went to Germany in 59, 60, and he said he remembers being overwhelmed by the scale, mm. and what surprises him now in relationship to the work he's produced and some keepers produced, other, is how relatively small it seems. He doesn't, mm. That doesn't lose power, but the, mm. his memory of it was absolutely vast canvases that now don't seem as vast. I don't know if that chimes with your recollection. It certainly chimes with me. And also I thought, it's a difficult question you've posed, but I think what happens is over the years, you continue a conversation with the works of art you've once admired or continue to admire. And when you re-see them, you're re-engaging re with them and maybe reassessing them. I think my roots were in abstract expressionism because I'm that age. I was a very young artist when I first experienced the work and saw it. Um, but uh, by no means could my work now be called abstract expressionism, but I still feel that that was my beginning. And... Um, I think each time, certainly in this exhibition, I feel very closely acquainted with so much of it, and I'm feeling I'm meeting old friends but re-experiencing them um, later part of my life. I think what changed a great deal for me was to see the very big room of Clifford Still, and that was because they haven't been shown very much um, universally, I remember when I lived in America, I made a journey up to um, the Albright Knox Museum in Buffalo, which was then supposed to be the, um, the place that housed the most Clifford Steele paintings. I don't know if they still have them, but they it's do. They, have a, they do. That and San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, they're right. the only two museums with a substantial, i.e. six or seven or eight yes. Clifford Stills. Yeah. Yes. But it was a great pleasure to see this room full of them and... Um, of course, he got the, the best showing, and we know why, because David Amfram is responsible for the, for the, uh, for the collection in, in Denver. No, no, well, but, yes, but you wouldn't believe the negotiations no, 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 that still happen. In other words, without giving away too much, but what the hell, uh, there's still a heck of a negotiation necessary with the Clifford Still Foundation. Really? Because for various reasons, um, there's still a feeling that the work is very delicate and perhaps it shouldn't travel. So it's a kind of coup to, to do that. But whether this is the beginning of the floodgates being opened, I don't know. But there has never been a major showing of still in this country because no. of the problems of loans, exactly. Yes. But he, he was very finickety, wasn't he, about... Oh, yeah. How and irascible, I think. Yeah. Yeah. prickly about right. everything. In fact, <laughs> he willfully refused to let people come to his studio. And, and uh, there's a story I would like to share with you for those who haven't heard it, because I, I might have written this down. <laughs> um, Barnett Newman told me, and they were great mates at one time, but by the time I was in New York, Clifford Still was no longer in New York. Um, and they were all, all that group of artists were very anxious about how well they were going to be represented in the major museums. And at that time, for instance, the Metropolitan had hardly anything of a collection of contemporary art, and they were just beginning to, and they were all very anxious to be first in the door there. However, the story is about MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art New York, representatives there, the curators went, eventually went down and got an appointment to visit Still's studio with the purpose of, of 
of making a purchase. They hummed and hard. They spent a long time in his studio. No doubt he really gave them a very hard time. And they eventually went away feeling they'd made a purchase. The cheque was sent. The painting was duly packaged and sent off and hung in, in the museum. After which, he sent them a letter saying, incidentally, that painting you're hanging, here I fall down with the details, but title, untitled 163, dated 1959, is not... 163, 1959, it's a copy of it, because you only pay copy prices. <laughs> so is this the... Vindictive, or is this the earliest example of postmodern appropriation? <laughs> so absolute expressionism was ahead of the game on that. Christopher, we, we, you knew what the show was going to be a, a long time out. I mean, we, you, know, you were involved in, in, in its evolution and so on. Um, were there fundamental surprises for you still seeing these works reconfigured or did it reiterate what you felt you already know? Because I ask you that question, sometimes I do see shows that I've been involved in where they're incredibly powerful but they don't surprise because I know exactly what it is. With this though, I wonder whether the visceral impact of these works all brought together still holds an element of surprise for you or whether that's um, not possible. You know when we first proposed this show, I, I said... We've got to do this now. Right? The timing feels perfect. The surprise was the emotional reaction, <laughs> both in myself and other people, of seeing the work. And on the opening night, it was, it was extraordinarily touching because the feeling, particularly in the room of Clifford Still, with Sandra still there and talking to her about it, would, you, would your father have liked this? I said nervously. She said, yes. That was enormously moving. Yeah. It, he was the Paul most difficult said, man in the world. To which Paul said in background, probably not. <laughs> God knows, God knows. But, 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 the main point is this. I think when we decided to do it, the effect of seeing it, I, I think, has been galvanising within what we call the art world for this reason. That exhibition appears to be without issues. Because I, I can't speak for my fellow artists, but there's a type of exhaustion sets in with art which has an agenda on us. Propaganda, issues, good for this, good for that, moral for this, moral for that. This is an exhibition about painting in which painting appears self-sufficient. It's enough. It's enough somehow. It's already metaphysical to say this is what I mean. So it carries on. Could that, I remind, that's the experience. Could I remind you that there is sculpture in this exhibition as well? And, uh, or I, or oh, I, really? Yes. Or are you, are you reinforcing Ad Reinhardt's view that sculpture is something you trip over when you step back to get a better look at painting? Sorry, it just slipped out. It slipped out. We'll cut that from yeah, the edited no, version. Ba Basil, anyway, yeah, art. This yes. is a fantastic exhibition. There's no doubt about that. I still get that prickly feeling when mm. I see these works in the flesh. <laughs> but... I think uh, it may be because there's too many works. Um, I think Rothko suffers from this in this show. I think Clifford Sill suffers from this in this show. Um, but I'm delighted to see so many Clifford Sills in Piccadilly. <laughs> Here. 
particularly in the RA. Um, but I still think that what these artists were on about really was not just painting an image. They were painting something that had to be charged by the experience of the looking at the image. Mm. Being in the presence of the image, being confronted by the image. Mm. And I think that that relates to how many works are shown on the same wall, how high they are from the floor, and um, I think that Rothko's room is, there's too many there. There's only five, but yeah, five. And I, what, I'm, what I'm dropping for is the maximum experience of these individual works. Somewhere along the line, that is not always achieved. Candidly put, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think that it's a very difficult, and I don't feel the need to be defensive, and I don't think you're being overcritical, but I think that there's always that balance, isn't there, between trying to produce a kind of, if not definitive survey, that you want to try and show as much of a complicated movement as possible against the balance of giving people the best visual experience. And that's always the debate about sure. exhibition making. And it's, yeah. uh, artists always have a, a slightly different sensibility and probably one that, that I respect. I mean, without shooting myself in the head, um, you know, it's not great having an Ad Reinhardt painting behind glass, but no, it's, it's the only way you can get the loan. So you well, either choose it or you don't, and you either play the political game or you don't. But you would hope down the line, if you owned a work like that, you might see it on the wall and think, yeah, maybe the glass comes off, but that's a, that's a different that's a different issue. No, we we, we have to acknowledge all those uh, problems. And I, I, I felt the there was, a, was part of that. I felt there was an an atmosphere of enthusiasm behind the mounting of the exhibition. I mean, I, I wasn't involved with it. I didn't talk to anyone about it while you were mounting it. But when I saw the exhibition, I could could feel maybe it's overhung. I don't know. Um, well hung, I think, is the phrase you're looking well, for. Well. <laughs> but I, I, just, I just felt no, it was... It was if, if, if there were too many works, it was because you were enthusiastic about showing, showing off as much as you could get hold of. It, I think we should be grateful for no, that. And I, and I think that, actually, the idea that it's... I mean, Christopher's right, it's fundamentally a painting show, but it's a painter's... A, no, it's, it's the painters and the sculptors at the Academy. It's the artists who got so excited about this mm. show. It's kind of driven by that. And the our art handlers here are, they're a wonderful group of people. And a lot of them are artists trained. And they embrace everything that we do to a greater or lesser extent with enthusiasm. But they they were just so bowled over by this. And there's really? a little group of them wow. who, whenever they can, so it's about three mornings a week, I, I call them the Abex Club. They, they go in at nine and they go, they just do a room each morning and they sit there and they look and they talk oh, and then they move on. They, they, were in the de they were in the courtyard uh, yeah. last week and, and, and now they've done it, they're starting again and they're going <laughs> to do that until the show ends. So the notion that you know, it's artists who want to look is, is absolutely yeah. there. But what's interesting, all the critics have pointed out in this exhibition, that actually it is about the profundity of human feeling and emotion, but it absolutely is not about the self-indulgence of my view of the world in a particular given moment. That may be something uh, as to how this work resonates. But one way of uniting 
all people associated with abstract expressionism is to say, should we go and have a drink? <laughs> On which note, um, can I thank Christopher Lebrun, Mally Morris, Basil Beattie and Paul Huxley. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.